Jesus, that's our proclamation today, Lord, that you are above and beyond all. You're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Lord. And we come to praise and magnify and worship you. You deserve it all, Lord. You deserve all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, Lord. Thank you so much for your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. You all may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Joey and Debbie. Everybody, it's good. Welcome to Grace Fellowship. How is everybody doing today? Are y'all still kind of waking up a little bit late night? Battle of Bristol, maybe? Something like that happened down the road? Anybody get a chance to go to the game? Okay. So we know where everybody is this morning. They're still sleeping in. Hey, but it's a good day. It's a good day to come praise and worship the Lord. It's also a great day when Tennessee Volunteers win a big game like that. It's a great day when the Arkansas Razorbacks win a big game like TCU. Yes, Jeff Presley. And it's an exceptional day. When Eddie Johnson's Mississippi State Bulldogs actually win a game at home. so <laughs> Hey, listen, it's great to be here today. My name is Brian Henderson. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. And it's a pleasure for me to get to be with you here today. As we continue our series on This is Living, where we're looking at the life, the stages of life, the stages of spiritual maturity, and the stages of which we grow as disciples of Christ. So if you have your Bibles or your favorite Bible app, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 13. Thank you. It's great to apply God's Word there. Acts chapter 13. We're going to spend a little time in Acts 13 today, um, so have those, that, that uh, passage ready. But before we get there, let me just recap a little bit about where we have been going as a church the last few weeks. Like I said, we've been studying the various stages of spiritual maturity, and we're using the Bible as our example, some of the metaphors that are used in the Bible to talk about stages of growth. And we've compared the stages of spiritual growth with the stages of, of life that we might recognize as just normal human beings, uh, whether it's our emotional growth or our physical growth. And we've talked about uh, stages of life using a family or kind of a childhood as it grows up. And we've also used some very helpful ideas. A lot of these ideas are captured by a pastor named Jim Putman in uh, Idaho. And also we have a coach who's from Real Life Ministries there and also in Houston named Brandon Ginzen and his team. And we're very grateful and appreciative for their work as well as we have uh, tried to become more of a disciple-making church. Now, the first stage of spiritual life that we talked about a few weeks ago was that of actual spiritual death. And this stage describes people who do not believe in God or they have no interest in a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes these are people, uh, we, we, we see them all the time, these are people who may just believe, hey, I just need to be a good person and I can go to heaven. I know we all have friends and probably family that believe that. And these folks, they really don't know the story of God. And they don't know how Jesus presents himself in the Bible. Spiritually dead people, they need people um, like us, hopefully someone who loves them and cares for them, someone who's a mature believer to come alongside them and explain the gospel to them and someone who can gently and respectfully answer their questions about Christianity. Now, the second stage of life that we talked about is that of spiritual infancy. And a spiritual infant is basically a follower of Christ who is just beginning their journey, and they are still very ignorant of many of the basic truths of, of, that we find in the Bible. They're still very dependent, too, on mature believers. And spiritual infants, what they need is they need a mature disciple to come alongside of them to explain to them these new truths they're learning from the Bible and also to help be a good model of Christian life. The third stage of spiritual life we discuss is that of a spiritual child. And if you remember, spiritual children or a spiritual child is someone who's still fairly self-absorbed. They're still fairly selfish about life and their faith. They're also very idealistic about things of faith. They're, they tend to be extremely black and white, 
and have a hard time understanding a lot of the nuances that, that we learn in biblical truth. They t- tend to depend a lot on their feelings, too, and they think a lot about what the world thinks about them and how they fit in. They are still learning to grow in a more complete understanding of biblical truth in their life. And these folks, sometimes they can get very frustrated with church life, for example. When things don't meet their expectations or people don't meet their needs, they can be very frustrated about their experiences. What they need is they need a loving spiritual family. They need to learn how to start feeding themselves through prayer and through godly relationships and through spending quality time in the Word of God. Now, the fourth stage we talked about, Joel actually talked about this last week, and that's the, the stage of being a spiritual young adult. And spiritual young adults, you remember, are often very passionate for God. They have learned to place other people before themselves quite often, and they're action-oriented, they're ministry-minded, and they're growing and maturing in their ability to lead themselves spiritually and lead other people. However, they're still not yet strategic in how they, they think of and train uh, up people to lead in the kingdom. And they can still be a bit naive at times regarding the struggles and challenges of the Christian life. So what they need is continued coaching, continued development. What they need is, is someone who will come alongside them and help them discover their gifts and help them learn how to better lead the people they serve. What they need is a spiritual parent. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, this, this next stage of spiritual maturity called spiritual parenting. Now, I want to be careful that, that when we communicate this to the church, and I think we've tried to be consistent with this over the last few weeks, that, that none of these spiritual stages of life, um, these are just helpful categories to try to help us understand what it looks like to grow up in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. Um, there's no way where we try and apply any type of hierarchy of prestige or worth in God's kingdom. Because if we remember, every one of us are God's children. And Jesus showed the same amount of love for every one of us, regardless if we're a spiritual infant or a spiritual parent. When he went to the cross and he died for us, we are all benefactors of his love and his grace from that day and that atonement of the cross. So please, we don't want to try to be acting like we're somehow we've arrived spiritually because we've taken the next step of, of, of growth and gone to the next stage. Um, now, spiritual maturity, let's, let's also remember this. Spiritual maturity does not occur because of necessarily the number of years that we've attended church or anything like that. It actually occurs when we are following Christ closely, when we are being transformed and changed by Christ, and when we are on mission for Christ. That is where we really see spiritual maturity start to take off. So remember, it's possible to still be a spiritual child even after faithfully attending church for, for 30 years. And it's also possible to be a spiritual parent um, after just a few years of maybe having a life where you were fighting in bars or listening to a lot of Justin Bieber music. Actually, I don't. Justin Bieber, I'm sure, is a nice kid, so I don't want to make too much fun of him. But, but basically, my point is this: spiritual parenting is not a it's not a, a, a title to be to arrive. It's actually about a life and a heart and an attitude and how you're following Christ. So what is a spiritual parent? A very simple definition of a spiritual parent is this. A spiritual parent is a disciple who makes disciples. And go ahead and write that down. It's the first point today. A spiritual parent is a disciple who makes disciples. And becoming a spiritual parent is what Jesus wants from all of us. Remember, he said in Matthew 4.19, he said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In Matthew 28.18-20, he said, Go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
And remember to teach them all the things that I have taught you. This is called the Great Commission. The Apostle Paul said it this way to his young protege, Timothy. He said it like this in 2 Timothy 2.2. He said, The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul is telling us, folks, go out and have spiritual children. And have spiritual grandchildren and spiritual great-grandchildren through how you've sown faithfulness and sown the gospel in the people's lives. And this is why we take discipleship so seriously here at Grace Fellowship. And why our mission statement simply says, go and make disciples. Now, the other day I saw a great quote over Joel's desk from a man named uh, Neil Cole. And it says this. I want to read this to you. It says, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing. It's disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, your preaching, your programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, then your church is not good. Now, that's a very sobering thing to think about. But I would much rather hear something like that coming from a pastor or someone like Neil Cole then hear that come from the words and the lips of Jesus when he returns to this earth. Like when he talked to the seven churches in Revelation. He says, hey, Grace Fellowship, man, you're great. I love how you start off, but your hearts were lukewarm. Warm. You did not invest in each other. You didn't multiply. You didn't take what I entrusted you and, and, and reproduce it into the lives of your community and grow my kingdom. So that's a sobering reminder. But fortunately, I, I'm very proud, actually, as an elder and having been around for, for a while here, I'm proud of what we're doing. I think that we're on the right track, and I, I really appreciate the, many, uh, the efforts and the hard work that many of you are putting into investing in one another. And so we're going to try to continue to improve on that and take that next step by talking today about spiritual parenting. So we're going to do this by looking at the lives of two men, two mature and strong spiritual parents by the name of Paul and Barnabas. And we're going to look at their life. And get some example. These men were apostles, they were pastors, they were church planters, they were missionaries. And their partnership together was one of the most productive in all of church history. So let's go ahead and look in, uh, beginning in Acts, Acts chapter 13. We're going to pick up on verse 13. And I want you to pay very uh, close attention to the apostle Paul here as he shares the history of God's redeeming work for his people Israel. And his, how his brilliant mind and his training in the Jewish scriptures helped present the case to them that Jesus is their Messiah. This is one of my favorite passages that I like to go to when I want to be reminded of the gospel and refreshed by the good news of Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 13 together. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, if you like to underline stuff, or put an asterisk next to where John left them to return to Jerusalem. That's important. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. This is a guy named John Mark. Okay, and his exit from the scene uh, will help inform us a little bit about what it looks like to actually become a spiritual parent. Now, from Perga, they went on to uh, Pisidian, Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers... If you have a word of exhortation to, to, for the people, then please speak. Now, it was very common in those days 
for there to be a time in a Jewish worship service where a respected leader or teacher would be asked to share their insights and to share their thoughts with the congregation. So someone that had been there worshiping, not necessarily one of the teachers of the day, would get a chance to share. And it's highly likely that Paul, who uh, was a Pharisee and a teacher of the law, was probably dressed in his traditional garb maybe. And they recognized, hey, here's a respected teacher and leader. Let's ask him and his partner Barnabas to share some, some teaching or some thoughts with us if they have that. It was also customary at this stage of their missionary journeys for Paul and Barnabas to first enter into the synagogues when they would enter a new town. They did this as a sign of respect to the Jewish leaders of the community. And they also did this so that their fellow Jews would be the very first people to hear the good news that Jesus was their way to salvation. Now, if you're ready for a... I hope you're ready for a great presentation of the gospel because Paul is about to bring it here, okay? This is great for all times and all people, so let's really appreciate what he's done here. So standing up, verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made them prosper during their stay in Egypt, and with mighty power he led them out of that country. And for about 40 years, they endured, he endured the con, their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took place about 450 years. And after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. And after removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him that I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now let's take a moment to think about what Paul is doing. Paul begins his message and his appeal by referring to... Um, the redemptive history of the Jews from Abraham to David. And the Jews at that time, they would hold to the teaching that God chose David to be the king through whom the promise of salvation, the Messiah, would come. So Paul is appealing to this common understanding of their Jewish history and their Jewish beliefs before he pivots into the presentation of the gospel in which he is going to talk about Jesus being crucified, laid in the tomb, raised from the dead, and witnessed by many followers who are out now proclaiming the good news to all people. Paul's also going to support this message of the gospel by referring to passages that are filled with messianic meaning. Passages we can find in Second Samuel, the 2nd and 16th Psalm, and also in Isaiah 11 and 55. So he continues in verse 24. Let's go along here. Verse 24 says, Before the coming of Jesus, John preach repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the very words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate 
to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. God promised our ancestors. What he had promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, and today I have become your father. God raised him to the dead that he would never be subject to decay. In the next couple of verses, basically, um, Paul appeals to the fact that David, the promises were written to David, but David, we know, did not, uh, did not die and in, in, in raised from the dead. He was decaying, per se. He was in the ground. He was buried. But yet, his descendant, Jesus, was the one whose body did not see decay, and that was thus the fulfillment that Jesus was the true Messiah. Verse 38, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And then he says, Take care uh, that what the prophet said does not happen to you. When he said in 41, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Now, as Paul and Barnabas began to leave the synagogue, many people invited them to come back the next week. Tell us more. We want to hear more. And Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. And you know, whenever I need a fresh reminder of what it means to be a follower of Christ, I just look at passages like this and I'm reminded of who I am in Christ and what Christ has done for me. And I look at men like Barnabas and Paul and their example. And I think about how to try to better emulate them. And I think about words like John chapter 15 where Jesus says that unless you abide in me, you can do no good thing. These men, they knew God's word. They knew God's character. They knew God's history. And if we want to become spiritual parents, then we too need to abide in Christ and embrace a deep dependence on him. They also show us that if we want to be spiritual parents, then we need to have a vision for the gospel in the world around us and in the lives of people. Let me ask you a question, a couple questions. How are you doing when it comes to abiding in Christ? Is Jesus your greatest love at this stage of your life? What things in your life compete with Him for your affection? Well, let me also ask you, how often do you dream about the impact of the gospel in the world around you? Does that, does that get you excited? Do you think about, I wonder what it would be like if so-and-so knew how much Jesus loved them? I wonder what it would be like if this part of our community, our world, knew what it was like to truly be forgiven. They could let go of guilt and shame, hurt, brokenness. That if they only knew they had a Savior that loved them so much that he gave his life to them? Would that heal their soul? Would that heal their heart? Spiritual parents, they, they live for this stuff. They live for this. They love to see the gospel come to life in the world around them. And they understand the Great Commission and they care about it. And they also, they also know how much they've been loved by God and they've been deeply changed by that. 
And so when they lead other people, they cannot help but lead them out of love. Their motives are driven by love for others. Paul and Barnabas, they were deep abiders in Christ, and they loved the gospel, and they loved other people. Paul and Barnabas' efforts were also very intentional, and they were relational, and they were reproducible. It's another point in your outline there, is that these guys were intentional, relational, and reproducible. In this way, they followed the example of Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus, how intentionally he would pursue other people? I mean, Jesus would show up on a scene and say, Hey, Zacchaeus, come on the tree, hang out with me. Hey guys, drop your nets, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Excuse me, ma'am, can you give me a drink? Oh, really? Well, if you knew who it was that was standing here before you, offering you a drink, you'd ask him for living water. None of this was happenstance or, or accidental. Jesus was very intentional. And remember this. Remember how he met people, how he was, he was very relational with them? He would, like, hang out with them at dinner parties or hang out with them in their homes, on hillsides, in synagogues. He would do life with these folks. And he was very, very intentional to reproduce his process. He would take some of them aside and he would teach them. And he would do life with them. And he'd ask them to go out and do for other people what I've done. Paul and Barnabas, they were doing the same thing that they had to model to them from the other apostles and from Jesus. They were intentional and they were relational. And they were reproducers. They were multipliers. These guys are spiritual parents. I want to take a moment. I want to show you a chart to kind of help you gain appreciation for the impact of Paul and Barnabas. As you can see on the far left, and I know it's a little bit busy, but on the far left you've got Barnabas, who was a primary influence in the life of Paul early on. Um, and he also uh, poured into John Mark. And you can see Paul was prolific. Paul, I mean, we don't know how many people Paul touched and invested. He Titus was a big one. He invested in Titus. He told Titus, hey, go out there and appoint elders for the churches, invest in them, ask the older men to invest in the younger uh, men, the older women to invest in the younger women. He told Timothy to entrust what he taught into faithful others. They poured into the church of Ephesus, which then you know, helped pour into other churches that we see. Uh, in Antioch, he taught, went out to many other churches, and they affected many cities from there. And just this multiplication, this effect was unbelievable. But I want to talk a minute about Barnabas. You don't see as many lines going from Barnabas as you do from Paul. But I think what's important is we have to realize that Barnabas was quite an impactor. Um, one thing that Barnabas understood, and I've had this happen to me before, um, I've had a chance to have a lot of men pour into me and different leaders that have been really a great blessing over the years. So because they poured into me, I've had a chance to pour into other people. But there have been some young men that I poured into who have far exceeded my spiritual impact in the world. And does that make me jealous? No. It actually makes me joyous. Because it's not about me, per se. It's about the kingdom. And what I love about Barnabas, he's one of my biblical heroes. He saw this. Let me tell you about Barnabas. Um, Barnabas, his real name was Joseph. He was a Jew. He came from the island of Cyprus. Um, he was respected, highly respected by the original apostles. Um, and he's mentioned as a faithful and holy man and a generous man who helped sell a field to help fund the work of the early church. And he gained his nickname Barnabas 
which means son of encouragement, because he was such a great encourager to the early apostles. Now, Barnabas was also a pastor of a church in Antioch. And not long after Paul experienced his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, um, the, the church back in Jerusalem, the apostles there, they were, they were terrified of Paul. They didn't know what to think. It wasn't that long ago since Paul had been hunting down and killing Christians and been all about persecuting the church. But Barnabas took a risk for Paul. See, he had seen Paul in action. He knew about uh, Paul's life change and story. And he went back to Jerusalem, and he, he went to bat for Paul. He took a risk for Paul. And later on, at his church in Antioch, Barnabas knew that Paul was growing, and he actually sent for Paul to leave Tarsus and to come spend a year or so with him in Antioch to help him pastor a church. And Barnabas saw the giftedness of Paul, and he saw it blossoming, and Barnabas made opportunities, and he created pathways for Paul to continue to grow in his gifts and continue to grow in his influence. And early on in their missionary work, when Paul and Barnabas would go out, people used to refer to them as Barnabas and Paul. Because they respected Barnabas as the elder leader, and they assumed and they respected him as kind of team leader. But it wasn't long before Paul started overshadowing Barnabas because of Paul's just tremendous gifts and what God was doing in his life. And then people started referring to the team as Paul and Barnabas. And did this upset Barnabas? I don't believe so. As a matter of fact, what's really what's really cool is Barnabas didn't have his his life and his identity tied up into, into um, his platform or how he stood out. Another interesting thing, remember I told you to mark the very first part of this verse, um, when John, that, that young man named John who left the, uh, the scene here, he fled basically back to, to Jerusalem. He was either homesick or something happened, but there was a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Paul was pretty, pretty upset. He was like, that guy John, John Mark, he's abandoned us. He left us. I'm done with him. And don't forget, John Mark is also the young disciple that Joel mentioned last week. Remember the guy that Joel said fled the scene when Jesus was arrested by the Roman soldiers and fled the scene naked? That was John Mark. So John Mark's got two huge strikes against him, okay? He abandons Paul in the missionary field. Then he flees, well, first he flees Jesus running away from the scene naked. Then he abandons Paul in the missionary field. Those are two huge strikes. If you're trying to apply for a cool discipleship gig, you're probably going to not make it with that kind of resume. But what does Barnabas do? Barnabas says, I don't give up on John Mark. And Barnabas continues to pour into John Mark and disciple him. And I think this is, this is a wonderful thing because we can see from history and also from our Bible this is a wise decision. Because Barnabas was able to help John Mark grow as a follower of, of Christ. So much so that before the Apostle Paul died, before he was martyred, he actually told his spiritual son Timothy, he said, Hey, would you send for me, John Mark? Send for me, Mark, because he has become helpful to me in my ministry. And also, Mark got a chance to spend time with the Apostle Peter and help document Peter's eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of life with Jesus. And that has become the book that we call the Gospel of Mark. So his spiritual fruitfulness was by no means done, and we can think, I think to a large degree, Barnabas' efforts to continue to keep him on track. And I don't think Barnabas would be upset by the fact that we don't have um, books by Barnabas written in our Bible. But we can also understand his impact, his multiplying impact, uh, by this simple statistic. The two men he poured so much into were the authors of 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. His identity in Christ was not a platform for which he could receive the praise of men. 
And spiritual parents know that. They know that ministry is a team sport. They know that the blessings and burdens of ministry should be shared. And they also know that they will never be effective parenting others if they are doing it to get something out of the other person. As a matter of fact, spiritual parents even realize that there will be times that they will actually suffer for the sake of the kingdom. And one of the marks of a spiritual parent is they are willing to serve other people, they're willing to suffer for the kingdom, and they're willing to share the glory, all for the sake of the kingdom of God. So let's go back to our text for a minute, and I'll show you what I mean as we move along here. In verse 44, it tells us that on the next Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered around to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. They said, we had to come speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we will now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. He said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of God spread throughout the whole region. But get this. The Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women and the people of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred them up in persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from the region. So Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet as Jesus commanded as a warning against these folks. And they went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Many people came to know the Lord during this time because of the courage and the camaraderie between Barnabas and Paul. These two guys, they served together, they, they suffered together, and they shared the blessings and the burdens of ministry together. And they always placed other people's needs before their own when they needed to help proclaim the gospel. They also willingly suffered for that dream of seeing the gospel come to life in the world around them and the life of other people. And Jesus tells us that if we're going to be spiritual parents, that we're going to suffer as well. If, if he had to suffer, we're going to suffer. If the world persecuted Jesus, it's going to persecute us. If you want to be a spiritual parent, then I'm going to just go ahead and tell you right now, be prepared for some difficult days ahead. i see if you had not. Sometimes you're going to be mocked and you're going to be ridiculed if you try to share the gospel. Sometimes you're going to be excluded from certain events or you're going to become unfriended when you try to share biblical truth. You'll also experience disappointment with your spiritual children. And guess what? They're going to experience disappointment with you. You're going to undergo times of crushing when, through no fault of your own, just the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world, pain and suffering come, come visit your life. And you're also going to experience at times the hard but loving hand of our Heavenly Father who's going to prune your life when He wants to teach you more about His will and His way. But through all these experiences, we're going to learn that Christ's grace is sufficient for us and that there's no greater joy in the world than helping build God's kingdom one spiritual time, one spiritual child at a time. Paul and Barnabas, they got this. They understood this. And we need to be students of their message and also the method that they use. And we also need to be students from each other. We can learn a lot from each other. Um, 
So I want to ask a couple of folks who've had some experience trying to grow into spiritual parenthood. How, and they're going to come share a little bit about what it's been like to share the gospel in their life and also have to, to grow up and then learn to see how God provides opportunities for them to be spiritual parents. I'm going to ask Mark Respect. Mark, you go ahead and come up here and continue your to take us along on the journey of your life, if you don't mind. And, and Gordon Varinka Williams, if y'all would please come and join me. Um, do we see Gordon and Varinka? They're on the... Okay, just... Oh, there you are. Y'all come up here, and uh, Mark, if you wouldn't mind, maybe start us off with just picking us back up with your uh, your journey. All right? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Joel for the opportunity to kind of share my life and and the things that happened in it. But today, I want to share uh, about, I was 11 years a Christian, and um, my dad was in construction in Las Vegas, and it was feast and famine, and it happened to be a particular summer where there was no work. And he decided to go back uh, to see his mom and family were originally from Wheeling, West Virginia, and he spent a month there. And um, my mom and him were not getting along because of his drinking. And um, so he went back, and then my mom got a phone call that said, uh, his name was Russ, and he said, he's very sick, we're going to send him back on a plane. So me and my next brother, we went to the airport, and we watched everybody come off the plane except him. And I told Tim, I said, did we miss him? How did how that happen? So I went to baggage claim, and he went inside the plane, and there was my dad back in the corner. Couldn't get out of the plane. So we took him to the hospital. He got him uh, settled down with IVs and stuff. And uh, next day I called my pastor, and I said, can, can we pray for some time that I can get alone with my dad? And Because uh, people were in and out and family and all that stuff, and my sister called me in the afternoon. She goes, how's Dad doing? I, he's pretty stable. He said, well, there's nobody over there. Why don't you go see him? And that opened up an opportunity. And my dad sat there, and he goes, well, you know, when I get out of here, I'm going to treat your mom better. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to get some help. And I said, Dad, hardest thing I've ever had to say was, I don't think you're coming home. And he knew I knew, and I knew he knew. And I said, we just need to get down to bare bare necessities here and call it like it is and I explained to him I said dad you remember how you said that I sound like Billy Graham I said that's the best compliment you could ever give me and as a Christian for the last 11 years have you seen my life and what the changes and all that and I said that's all I want for you and I said I want to be able to see you on the other side and he's well you know we're Catholic we're I said dad I, I traded my religion for relationship the only thing that counts is when you get to the other side, God's going to say, did you know my son? Did you accept what he did for you on the cross? And I said, that's all there is to it, Dad. And he sat there and he sat there, and all of a sudden he goes, I need what you have. And I grabbed his hand and we prayed, and he was adding words to my words, which was really awesome. Well, the nurses started coming in, and they said I had to go, I had to do tests. That night he went into a coma. They called the family, 
my mom and two brothers and sisters called us to the hospital and said, we've got to make some decisions. Go in this waiting room, and we'll call you. Well, we went there, and it was packed, and it was like a smokehouse, and we went to another room. Well, we couldn't hear the page, but someone else heard the page in the hospital. Is a man named Grant Gran, who my dad and I had worked with as a carpenter, who was a church planner in Vegas. And he heard the page. He was in the hospital visiting his brother, who was sick, and he heard the family of Russ Riesbeck. And he went to intensive care, found my dad. He walks in the room. He looks around. He sees me because he knows me because my kids are going to the same church uh, school that he goes to. And he said, Mark, I just saw your dad, and I see Jesus in his eyes. And no one in the room, my other brothers and sisters, had no clue what that was talking about. Well, that night, my dad died. But before that, Grant and I went into the room. He said, let's go pray with your dad. And I went in and grabbed his cold, clammy hand, and I said, Dad, it's Mark. Do you recognize me? And he squeezed it. And Grant and I prayed with him, and when I was ready to leave, he would not let go of my hand, but he was in a coma, and I finally got away from him, and that's the last time I'd I'd talked to him. And so out of that, I got to explain at the funeral that my dad's brother held what I'd done with my dad on his deathbed, and what that did was... My next brother said, I didn't have anything to offer Dad. I need the same thing. My two sisters, my other brother, one by one came to know the Lord through that whole thing. And um, the amazing thing is that was 30 years ago on Labor Day. It's the 30th anniversary of that happening. And um, this has been good for me to do this because it kind of creates, we have to look in the rearview mirror sometime to see where we're going, you know, where we came from to see where we're going. And it's kind of it's kind of sparked me to think about what am I doing currently? What, who am I discipling? Who am I plugged into? And uh, it's, it's, it's been good. Uh, I thanks for the opportunity to share all this. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Um, <laughs> gosh, I hate it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, many years ago, uh, there was a divine appointment. God, God, God did it. Uh, he put a person in my life. It was, it was a divine appointment. And he knew what was going to happen later on. He knew I needed that. And he brought him to my life and he spent time with us he became he was intentional he was intentional he seeked me out i was in a taekwondo place and he seeked me out and started talking to me he was very intentional and you know how introvert he is and uh uh but he spent time with us and uh many years later he became that person that showed me christ when I needed it the most in my life. And that was God telling me, I'm here, and I'm taking care of you. So that was 
parent, I mean, he was my parent, my spiritual parent, and, and I learned from him to do that as well. And God put us in situations that we were able to do the same for the people and see God at work and see the prayers and the mentoring that he poured out into us. We were able to do it with other people and reproduce. So he, he was a perfect sample of what he was talking about. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing was I heard from, from uh, Malcolm's group. They talk, he said something about Jesus is looking for fat people. I really like that. Fat people, faithful, available, and teachable. Hmm. I really like that. And he is. He's looking for that. Uh, we had the honor to do missions work in GHO. It's a global health outreach. And it's been amazing to see what God is doing in the world. Uh, we, we have always helped. We have never been the main leaders until this past year. And we had a chance to do the trip to El Salvador. It's a medical mission trip to El Salvador. And we knew we couldn't do this alone. We knew this. We, we are no leaders. I hate talking here. <laughs> and he talks a lot, but I, I just, we knew that we needed God's help. And, and we started praying for that, and we begged God, God, we need you. We need you because we cannot do this on our own at all. And God showed up, and what happened was amazing. When, when God shows up, it's just always amazing. So uh, he, he, he just, and, and he confirmed to us, I can do this if you ask me. I can do this. And it was probably our best trade that we ever had because we understood that he needed to do it, and, and he did it. So... Thank you. <clears throat> there is a powerful picture um, in Scripture, many powerful pictures in Scripture, uh, but one that the Lord laid on my heart. Uh, it's in Zechariah chapter 3. Um, <clears throat> and then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. <clears throat> Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? There's a story that one of the GHO, Global Health Outreach Leaders, tells. Um, she leads a medical team to a country overseas and does a medical clinic with prostitutes. And during one of the clinic days, they had a tube of I mean, it's a little complicated, the nuances, but it was just a, a test tube that had some medical material in it that was very critical. It was one that if they would have lost it, could have been a disaster for the clinic, and they couldn't find it. They were looking all over the clinic trying to find it. And, and they were looking, and they began to get frantic, and they still couldn't find it, and it didn't matter what they did. They just could not find it, and they, and they stopped, and they prayed a couple of times and still couldn't find it. And then finally, there was like a light bulb that went on in her head, and she said, where's the trash at? And somebody said, well, we just took it out back, and, and they're burning it. Yeah. 
And uh, so, you know, she runs out behind the clinic and sees where they dumped the fire and the fire's burning and she runs over the edge of the, uh, the fire and she sort of looks into it and she sees this tube laying there. And she, I don't, can't remember if she got a metal or a piece of stick or something and pulled it out of the fire. And she said, the Lord told me that's what you're doing in this place, is you're plucking sticks from the fire. You're plucking sticks from the fire. My wife and I were on fire. We were in a fire that was burning us up. We didn't even know that we were on fire. And God worked through people here at this church, through other people, to reach into the fire and pull us out. We were smoking. I mean, we were smoking. We showed up here on the doorstep of this church in December of 2012, and, and we, we still had smoke. We reeked of smoke. And there's a lot of you guys that somebody reached into your life and they pulled you out of the fire. And if you will just think back, you, you will see this. And God gave us the fantastic privilege of reaching into other people's lives now. We had 140 decisions for Christ in this week in El Salvador. And to just be a part of that, if you would have told either one of us that we were going to be leading the team to El Salvador a few years ago, we didn't even know if we were still going to be married a few years ago. Let alone, you know, plucking sticks out of a fire. If you go on and you read the passage in uh, Zechariah, and I hope that you do, a beautiful thing happens. The, the priest is standing there in rags, and in the vision... The angels are commanded to bring a turban and to bring clothes and to and to reclothe him. You know, at some point in your life, you were dressed in rags. And God sent Ananias or Brian Henderson or somebody into your life, had a conversation with you, reached into your life, and you got a turban and you got new clothes and you got cleaned up. And then you were given a tremendous privilege of being able to go and, and share with other people. I mean, He doesn't just clean us up, but, he, but he, he gives us a new direction. And He lets us pluck sticks out of the fire. And so being a spiritual parent is about plucking sticks out of the fire and realizing that you were plucked out of the fire. Thank you all so much. Well... There are a few other things in the notes that I could try to go on to and explain. The truth is I don't, I don't really know that I need to right now because when you hear the stories of what God's done in like Mark's life to have the, the life change in the heart and the desire to reach his father even when death's door was right there and to be faithful to take the risk and share the gospel and then to witness God prove faithful to bring his family to the Lord. That's spiritual parenting. And Gordon Frank, I, I appreciate your kind words. I wasn't expecting them. But I can tell you that it's been an um, incredible joy uh, for me to see you all and to invest in you all. And I know how painful, uh, the painful road you all have been on, but I also know the incredible, glorious 
love that God has shown other people through y'all. He has taken your story and he has multiplied it. And frankly, that's one of those examples where I kind of sit back and say, wow, you know, no telling what God wants to do through them. Because y'all have an amazing testimony and amazing ability to bless others. So um, I just want to encourage all of us that no matter where we are spiritually, um, pray that God would bring you a spiritual parent if you've never been discipled. Come talk to me or to one of the elders or Joel or um, our staff, uh, Andy, Matt, one of our small group leaders, our ministry team leaders. Ask them, can you help me take that next step? Can you help me grow? Because you'll be amazed at how God works out details. And someday, if you're not there yet already, pray that God will bring you someone that you can invest in spiritually and get the great joy of seeing the kingdom grow one spiritual child at a time. So what I want to do is um, I just want to pray for us, and um, we're going to close out the service after this for the prayer. But um, I also want to just mention one thing, too. Uh, after the service, this is the first Sunday we're doing this, but Glenn Schof uh, and his small group are going to facilitate um, a conversation out here in the gathering area about Christianity and worldview issues and maybe... Maybe hanging out there for a few minutes and, and hearing what they had to say is, is a next step for you, okay? But um, that happens right after the service. Let me, let me pray for us, okay? God, we're humbled by the incredible grace that you have given us. When you gave your life for us on the cross, Lord, I don't think we can, we cannot fully comprehend what all that means. It feels good to say that, hey, we're a child of God and we're going to someday see each other and see you in heaven. But the truth is, what you did for us on the cross it transforms us. It makes us objects of wrath and turns us into objects of joy. You came into the fire of our lives. Sometimes we don't even realize we're burning. And you pluck us out and you do clothe us. And you give us robes and garments of white and you tell us, that I am yours and you are mine. And you call us to go into the world and make disciples, to raise up others who will continue to tell the good news for generations across this entire world, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And God, that's what we, the kind of church we want to be. We want to be the kind of people who, who make disciples who make disciples, because that's what you did for us. So as we go this week, Lord, would you please walk with us? Would you guide us? Would you help us honor you with our lives and glorify you in all we do? Give us a vision, Lord, for the gospel in this world and other people. In your precious and holy name we pray. And we pray. Amen. And God bless you, Grace. Thank you for being here today.